0: Welcome to Brian Fayak of Next Step uh, on uh, this issue podcast. We're glad to have you with us today, pal. Thanks for being with us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Pat. I'm uh, I'm honored.
0: Well, you can tell we're getting down to like the you know the through the thin part of the herd. You know what I mean? We've really hit everybody else at this point. So uh, you were you were like really the only one left.
1: I'm jealous of Lee and and her number one status in. Uh, and being on the podcast. Uh, she did a great job as as well as Kirk and Alex. I liked all three of those. I, I'm all studied up and ready to go.
0: Okay, there are gonna be some really, really difficult questions. There's gonna be a lot of math. There's gonna be a lot of everything here today. We'll run you through the uh, through the paces. Uh, so as you know, uh, so I always start at the beginning. And it's so funny, as long as I've known you, as well as I've known you, I, I don't know the beginning. So we'll start with the, Beginnings of Brian Fayak, and then the beginnings of the industry. So let's start with you. Like, uh, where are you born and where would you where'd you start out? You're here in Oklahoma, right? Native Oklahoma?
1: I'm in Oklahoma. Not 100% native. Um, my dad was Air Force. So we did move around some, not as much as is uh, some military families, but uh, there is a Air Force Space. There's, there's a few of them here in Oklahoma, but there's one down in the southwest corner of the state in a small town called Altus, um, and that's where my dad. It's it's mostly a, a training base. They train pilots there to fly C5s and the big cargo planes, and and that's where my dad spent a lot of his career. Um, although when when I was in eighth grade we moved to spain for 3 years and that was a uh, interesting interesting time and interesting experience one that i was very furious of when we had to do it and and one that i was really grateful for once we did because it was it was a great experience
0: how old were you when you were in spain
1: so eighth ninth and 10th grade so what is that 15
0: yeah.
1: to yeah oh, 16 yeah. 17 something like that
0: okay yeah. you know, I just remembered, I did know that about you because you had that famous quote when we were over at Fort Myers, they said, were you a veteran? And you said, I served at home.
1: I did serve at home. You know, I, I'm a big believer and I love the veterans and and the, the people that serve in the military to protect our country and the sacrifices they make. My dad was in, in Vietnam, uh, but I'm also a big, uh, a big believer of the sacrifices the spouses make and the uh, in the family make. So uh, my hat's off to, especially nowadays where you have sometimes both parents serving in the military, and it's really a family that kind of comes together and supports itself, and and they're great, great Americans and great people.
0: So he, your dad ended up, did he retire back in Oklahoma?
1: Yeah, when we when he got when we we got done with the it was a three-year deal in Spain. Uh, we came back because I was going to go into my junior year of high school, and he was retiring, so he could go anywhere. And you know, Altus always jumps out as the top of the list. You know, when you're thinking I can go back and go anywhere I want to go, and but that is where we went, and and I. Uh, finished up and graduated high school there and went on to college.
0: So, and you went to college in Oklahoma?
1: I did, I did. Uh, I played a little football back then and, and went to college at a division two school called the University of Central Oklahoma, um, which is not too far from here. It's in, in Edmond, which is another suburb of Oklahoma City. And uh, played there for four years. and. And went to school. And, that, and that's and, and that's why I, I listened to all the other podcasts, because I was prepping like I did for college. Right. I was to make sure I could use someone <laughs> else's answers if I needed to. I got the bonnet.
0: So did you uh, did you play football with a helmet or without? <clears throat> yeah. so, uh,
1: I, I think uh, I think with. But, you know, back then, back then, we'd like to hit you like to hit with the crown of your helmet. You know, that that was the kind of the way you did it.
0: What position did you play?
1: I played defensive tackle. And uh, then my last two years, I also played offensive tackle. So, you know, like running a PEO, you got you to gotta do everything the team needs you to do to, to, to be successful.
0: <laughs> Great training ground. Yeah. Okay. So then catch me up uh, between uh, college and the PEO industry. How many years were in between and how would you get here?
1: <clears throat> well, you know that's uh, it's interesting. You know, back then you you uh, you went and looked for jobs in the back of the newspaper, and sometimes there would be blind ads, right? You know, it'd just be risk managers send your resume to this PO box. So I sent out a resume, and and I got hired by what what I soon understood was. An employee leasing company, or staff leasing companies, what they called them back then, took me about a year to figure that out uh, because there. This was in 1991, and there wasn't. uh, I don't know that I didn't know that there was an official name for the industry, but I was hired as a field risk manager, and of course they did a lot of blue collar business and they did a lot of oil and gas, in Oklahoma and uh, East Texas. And, you know, I had a company car and I would uh, drive around and visit these locations for three or four days a week, depending on what part of the part of the state I was in and servicing. And then I'd have a day in the office. I worked from home. You know, I had a day back in 91. I had a day in the office where I'd put together my my reports and send those out. And that was
0: that was all in Oklahoma, right?
1: Well, that was in Oklahoma, and and I could live where I wanted, and and they they had a good client base in Texas, so they, I moved to San Antonio, and was working out of San Antonio and covering kind of South Texas, and at that time, a young lady that I went to high school with, um, reached out to say hello, and she was living in Dallas, and. and And I said, well, you know, just so happens I'm going to be in Dallas for business in two days, which I wasn't, but I could make up my own schedule. And I went up there and we uh, went out to eat. And within a year or so, we were married. So I've been married to Jill, my my, uh, love of my life and someone I've been with for now 30 years as of a week. As of Monday, last Monday, it was thirty years.
0: Wow! Well, congratulations, man. That's great. So you got lots of benefits from being in this industry. That's terrific. You picked up a wife.
1: Yeah, and- I've been in the PEO business for thirty-two years, and in the marriage business for thirty years. And I'd <laughs> like to see that combination, you know, of a tenure in in one in one space.
0: So tell me about. Uh, how next step started i know it's sort of a, in a sense a, sort of a it looks like a tragic but a sort of a sad start right there were some some circumstances that that led to it starting up so yeah talk about that
1: yeah i think um i you know i i was living in texas my, we i moved to dallas my wife and i got married she soon let me know that my wife was a pharmacist and i was a a safety guy making about twenty thousand a year. She soon let me know that I needed to pick it up and do better uh, on the income front. So I needed to pick it up. So I, I started looking for another job, and of course, I found another job with a with another PEO, and that PEO was Staff Leasing, uh, and they were they were out of Bradenton, Florida. They became Javity, and were originally uh, eventually bought by Trina. And they hired me to be. And
0: by the way, by the way, Brian, I always say, like, if you mapped this industry, it's like uh, Jevity and staff leasing is like uh, the Garden of Eden, right? They're Adam and Eve. Like, like everybody seems to have some line right back to staff leasing or jevity, right? I Like Kristen Appleman, like so many people trace their DNA to jevity and staff leasing, right?
1: you know, they they would always say that kind of about the IBM guys, you know, back in the day and and IBM guys that, that all work together and, and there's a great, great crew of, uh, ex-staff leasing folks around and next to Napio, you know, I'd say it was my, I had two great networking places to go to, to get help and, and to find information. And one was Napio and one was, uh, staff leasing. Um, but yeah, so I, I went to work for staff leasing, doing the same thing. Their theory was they were going to hire. I guess I'll eventually get around to starting a company, but my goal is to go an hour and fifteen minutes, so I want to beat Alex. And I noticed that he was the longest <laughs> podcast today, so I'm going for the record somehow. If I can't be number one, um, so I, I started out in the field, and their theory was is we're going to have this safety guy and we don't have any clients yet but when he's there he's going to make sure that every single client we bring on is underwritten and is the top best client we can get the problem is is you know they were going into texas which was not a set rate state for workers comp like it is in florida and the market is totally different and back then, it was really different because it, the state fund had just gotten funded and introduced by the state. So the, the to, in an effort to bring down workers' comp rates, so there was a lot going on. And they weren't selling any business. And so I said, hey, I can sell business. And that they said, well, why don't you go and open uh, the Austin branch and be a manager for us down there because you got all the sales experience and so we did that. But anyway, back, so I was living in Austin and had been and and running a, a, and opening a sales branch there and, and had a lot of success and had a lot of fun and met great people in the industry like Clint Burgess and Wade Latham over at COAD and, and many, many others that, that I still stay in touch with today. And, and those people give you valuable, valuable uh, support and help. Uh, and hopefully, I can do that at times for folks. But um, it was going along, and it was the um, summer of '97. I had, we, my first son was born in February, and we we're kind of coming into the spring summer. And I was on the road, driving between um, Austin and San Antonio, because I was covering the San Antonio branch in my spare time. At, we had a kind of a change there and um i got a call from my wife they did have cell phones back then our, our branch had one computer fax machine a copier and the manager's got a cell phone and so i had a cell phone and uh, my wife called me and and she said hey you know my brother's gone to the doctor he has uh, been having these headaches And I need to get home and, you know, being a pharmacist and having some medical background, she wanted, and of course of being her brother, she wanted to get home and try to help. So I said, sure, you know, obviously sure, you know, let's do that. And off she went, turned into my brother has a terminal form of, of brain cancer and and what, what he had, um, was a called a glioblastoma and that was the same thing Kennedy had and some others. So those are, you know, a hundred percent fatal. It, it just depends on kind of the time frame. So you get that kind of news and my brother-in-law was 24. Uh, he had just graduated OU dental school and, and just got married and found out his wife was pregnant and he was working, uh, in a small dental office, kind of getting ready to get his practice started. And of course I was down in Austin as we we talked about. And, you know, I would say that like many, I, I don't know about you, but from time to time I would have thoughts and visions of grandeur or daydreams or whatever you might call them that, you know, hey, I had All the experience in the world being a sales manager of a small branch of a big PEO, which must qualify me to be able to start my own business and and start a PEO if I needed to. And if I did that, you know, I would be able to grow my own business. I did find out later that there's a whole nother side that after you sell a client, you have to have an operations and a business to service the client. But you know, at that time. You know, what you don't know doesn't hurt you. And I would have those thoughts, but um, I never, I, I don't, I believe today that I never would have acted on those, those thoughts, you know, because my job was good. The company was good to us. We were an exciting time and we were growing fast and went public. And so there was a lot of excitement in the company. But when an event like that happens to someone, you know, and, and love in and the family, you know, you. you It gets you thinking and the thing that I say about starting a business is, or doing a lot of things in life is this phrase and I've always thought about it and it's, what would you attempt to do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I think we've all heard that and I have a little uh, paperweight here on the corner of my desk that I've had for about 26 years and it says, what would you what would you attempt to do if you knew you couldn't fail? And when I think about those visions of starting a company and why it wouldn't happen, it's because you have a small kid and you need to make some money, and that's not the time you typically want to go out and take the risk and fail. And you know, what do people think about you if you try to do it and fail? But when you see a person struggle with a term criminal illness. And you get that perspective of how they handle this. And I, and I hear it's quite common, uh, but they're more worried about you than they are themselves. They're extreme, you know, it was extremely brave and courageous. And, you know, it's a, it's a long, grueling battle, you know, that, and that ended up lasting about a year and a half to two years. And, Jay was able to see his first son born, and and there were some great things about that. But it it made you say, hey, what would happen if I did fail? You know, what's the worst thing that could happen if I tried to do this and I failed? And certainly, I could have a terminal illness, and that might be worse than that, I would assume. And so, I decided to do it. And, you, and I left uh, staff leasing in in September of 1997 and came back to Oklahoma and decided to start a P.E. Boy,
0: 97. Yeah. So let me I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and then I'm going to come back. Is. Uh, is that. Part of your culture today, like how did that change you? right in terms of of uh, you know what would you what would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail like did that change you do you carry it today other than the paperweight on your desk and do your troops believe it do they own that do they subscribe to it yeah I
1: think I think when I when when I listened to Lee's podcast she talked about you know, the way she liked to handle things if, if someone made a mistake right and, it, and it's not the uh, the mistake that, that's the problem and in our business a mistake can add up to money real quickly um, but it's not, not the mistake that's the problem it's just let us know we know that things happen and, and we'll adjust and adapt to that and you know when i think of that in our day-to-day business you know, I always try to emphasize with our folks those same things that she talked about as far as making sure that people weren't afraid to fail. And if they did fail, in this case, in processing payroll or tax payments or whatever it may be, that they alerted us as quickly as possible. And, you know, aside from that, you know, we have one of our one of our core statements is, you know, that, you um, is to embrace the entrepreneurial spirit. So you know we want to embrace the entrepreneurial spirit in all of our in all of our people here at Next Step. And we want them to to think like entrepreneurs and to push the boundaries of what we're doing and how we service clients. Um, because of course that's who we're servicing entrepreneurs and
0: how how do you do that in scale? Right. And and scale. How do you how do you, how are you entrepreneurial and scale
1: out? You know, I, I've I've had a humbling lesson probably over the last four years, and 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 when you talk about the kind of the kind of growth, let's say Alex has had at can that that he talked about, you know, you, you you get a lot of respect for that when when you scale finally as a business yourself, and. For us, I think there there's a real you have to start putting real effort behind those core principles or those values that you put out. And the effort when you're scaling is contradictory to, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit. And you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, because you need to bring in structure, you need to bring in process, you can't have people making workarounds to the system. And, you know, doing something that'll get a problem solved in an hour for the client, but yet cause a hundred problems down the road. And so you have to kind of adjust that entrepreneurial spirit to fit inside the entrepreneurial spirit of a of an organization that needs to, to operate off a process. So I think it's a real balance act, And it's something that, that we were humbled by and, and really had to work hard to, to learn how to manage.
0: Yep. Okay. So let me go back to 97. So you start next step and do you have any clients or employees? We don't, don't have
1: any clients and we don't, we don't have <laughs> any employees. But we have an idea and we ha- and we have a dream and
0: did you have money?
1: You know, not a lot. You know, I, I had, um, we'd saved up. I think we had probably $30,000 and not a lot of business savvy on top of that. And nowadays, you hear so much about people, people raising money, you know, and that was less known back then, you know, and, and talked about back then about raising money, but raising money also to me is code for, giving someone a part of my business, which I'm also not excited about either. And uh, they they want me to share something, you know, they want something in return. So we didn't have a lot and we decided, you know, we were starting out. And I think the, uh, you know, the big thing I was telling you, my wife and I are both from this small town in Altus and she stayed there during the week and helped her brother and stayed at her house there, her parents' house. And I would come up to Norman on during the week, and people would say, "Well, Brian, why are you in Norman?" And I'd been around those those financial guys at Staff Leasing, and I and I heard some of that impressive way that you talk about things, and and I'd say, "Oh, well, the university's there, and we have this great demographic, and we can pull these super educated, talented people to work for us." And but the truth is my sister lives in Norman and she just got married and has a house and I can sleep on the couch during the week (laughs) and live for free. So I started in Norman with about $30,000 and we we had to go for three, it ended up being over three years before we made any money. So, um, so there was the, I don't know how you divide that out, but, but I do know when we go back and visit our parents, I would go grocery shopping in the pantry, you know, take all the soup and beans and everything else. And, you know, my kids now they're they're like leftovers. I don't want any leftovers. When we (laughs) left our house, we took all the food and everything else with us.
0: Um, (laughs) So, how how long did it take to get some traction?
1: You know, it takes a while. You know, it's a wonderful business, right? Recurring revenue. You build up a client base, and and it's really really nice. But you got to build up a client base first. And how
0: long did that take?
1: You know, it took us about two years uh, to get to something that that we could really work with. And we were we were signing up some small clients, you know, here and there. And it's of course hard to sign up clients when you don't have an office and you don't have a business yet and all of those kind of things um
0: but did did you ever consider throwing in the towel like for those two years saying the hell that I'm just going to go to a salaried job somewhere or
1: you know i you know going back to that that what would you do i guess it worked both ways for for me it, and it just dawned on me it said what would you do if you know you couldn't fail i didn't dawn on me to leave because i thought if i did the whole business would collapse. I didn't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to get out of it. And and of course, selling wasn't as prevalent back then as it, as it is now. There were a couple of businesses that sold early there and, and you know, to ADP and, and things like that. And But there wasn't a lot of selling then. And it wasn't easy to me to figure out how to unwind it. Because as the business as the business goes right, and you've got the tax payments, and and you're rolling along, it's like, well, what do you do? And um, I, uh, and then then of course I'm pretty bullheaded, but I, but I think we took the was that Ponce de Leon, you know, we we just burned the ships and said we're, you know, you're going to make it work here. Uh, um, and you know, we had my dad's house was mortgaged, uh, my grandparents. Savings was back in a, a CD. Um, for me to, f- once it kind of got to a little bit of scale and and there was some other people's families money and you hear about small small businesses starting with family, it's like, how I, I I can't stop, I can't fail, because, you know, then my grandparents' money's gonna be gone and when they pass away, my aunts won't get their part and. My dad, you know, his house, and all of these kind of things. So it was a uh, definitely felt like that wasn't an
0: option. Yeah, this was real, and you had a lot of personal stuff riding on. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about uh, you getting traction and taking off after those first couple of years. Like, wh- when do you feel like you turned the corner?
1: You know, in the second year, we sold a big client. It was about. 300 employees, and they man they made uh, baseball caps with NCAA logos on them, and so they had a, a manufacturing facility, and <clears throat> they came on as a client, and that that was like okay, you know, there's still something magical in the PEO industry if you get a client over 100 or 150, if you get three, you know, it gave it gave us some confidence and some cash. And the next thing I did right after that was hire some salespeople in Texas that i worked with, uh, when I was managing down there. And it was very, very fortunate for us because you knew, them, you knew they could produce and they were willing to, uh, to join a, uh, a startup. So then we were, uh, we were off climbing the stairs, as I like to speak. You know, when you're growing a business, you're, you go up, you kind of plateau, and then you gotta take a breath and decide if you're gonna take that ne- that next stair step to uh,
0: more expense, and then turn around and go out and find more revenue. Yeah. It's okay, so take us to present day. How many worksite employees? How many internal employees?
1: You know, today, I think we will, Finish the month right somewhere over 19,200 range. Uh, so we're really pushing at 20,000 and we're excited about that. That's been a, a goal of ours for a while. Um, we're running about 180, 175 um, internal employees. We're 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 heavy on the sales side. We're we're 100% uh, organic growth, um, and we don't use brokers. So we we do that with our own sales team. So we're a little heavy, heavier there than most PEOS. Uh, but you know, I was the same size PEO for about eight years, and every year it was like this. I would have grown this year if this client didn't leave, and I would have grown this year if this didn't happen. And the truth was, is you're not going to grow in this business past 2,500 worksite employees. If you can't figure out a way to bring on more than you're going to trip at 2,500, we can, you know, we get to 2,500. And, and if you do it rather quickly, you're not attriting a lot of business, right? And then when you get there, all of a sudden, you got to sell enough to offset that. And then you got to sell enough to grow. And, uh, you know, that's, and, and and after a while, of that we we finally dawned on us, and we said, you know, we're going to have to put an effort into into a sales team if we want to grow. And so that's what we did. That,
0: that's what I was going to ask you. So how, how did you do it? How did you go from twenty five hundred to twenty thousand? What was the
1: the big thing was was that? And we said, you know, why are these people around us? Why are some around us having success and growing? Course, I had to realize that not everybody was having the success in growing that I would hear them talk about it at Napio. But, you know, if you're a good CEO at Napio, you add 20%, right? You know, when you're in the halls of, uh, of conversations. But, um, you know, we, we thought about it. And of course, we had that experience at staff leasing. You know, staff leasing was a big sales machine and 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 we knew the structure But I don't know, something didn't click, you know, something didn't click to the fact that the numbers, and and when you only have three or four or five salespeople, depending on what you have at 2,500, 3,000, you can't really tell what's gonna go on with the business coming on. And of course, four or five salespeople, four salespeople for for 2,500, 3,000 like PEO, it's very, very expensive. And then you have a little turnover, you know, sales on the good side is going to turn over thirty percent. You don't know. You can't tell with any certainty how much business you're going to bring on, and then you got the business that's leaving. And it was like, okay, if we want to grow, we need to get to some kind of scale. And so we decided that we're going to go all in in building a sales team, and we had to do that. In a very bootstrapped way without a lot of management. We had a lot of people working remotely and, you know, different out of their houses in different uh, cities, which is fine. Other than what we were needing to do was get structure, right? And get accountability and, and be able to play the numbers game where we could say, you know, at this number, let's say, and that was about 20. Salespeople, you know, if we got about 20, we could really start to tell, Hey, we're going to bring on 2,000 lives this year. And, you know, some people are going to trip and all this, but, but we know that's going to happen. And once we got there and once we kind of got that formula, it all fell into place. But the time that we started doing that and the time to get there, it was pretty messy because, you know, they're just, wasn't, there wasn't a way that you could see, but today, you know, if we forecast that we're going to sell 5,000 worksite employees uh, next year, we'll hit it, you know, I mean, we can tell that what the number is going to be.
0: You guys uh, do such an unbelievable job on marketing. I mean, we see it, you know, come through our news feeds and various social media channels. This is a great job on that, but why uh, organic growth? It just seems acquisition is the way to go that's happening all over the industry companies your size you know uh medium-sized fish swallowing little fish big fish swallowing medium-sized fish uh why organic growth
1: well i think the answer to that was pretty simple and it goes back to my original answer about raising capital uh to do that i'd have to have someone on part of next step you know and and whatever we can talk to my therapist but whatever that is in me that doesn't like to play in the same sandbox as as the other kids um i didn't want to do that number one because i didn't understand it at all in the very first years of 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 peo acquisitions a lot of them failed spectacularly so I, i had that that view of acquisitions and it wasn't really until Mark Prober came along at Oasis and he, he kind of made a, a system and in a, in a, and in a, in a, in a lot of success in acquisitions. And since then there's a lot of companies like Bencam and others that co-ed that are really good at doing acquisitions. And they figured out how to do an acquisition, incorporate the uniqueness that each PEO has and each PEO owner has. And, um, you know, be successful successful with it, but we didn't see a lot of success in that back early on. And we didn't want to, uh, to have partners, you know, giving us money to do that. And with the sales team, it gave us a sense of direction and control. We wanted to drive towards a certain vertical types of business. And we couldn't do that with brokers. And so, and we could, and Back then, you know, a, a salesperson, you could hire a salesperson for 35, 40,000 and pay them 20, 25% commissions. Now the whole market has changed and PEO salespeople are getting 75, 80,000 and getting, you know, a smaller. And that's not just PEO salespeople. I mean, that's just salespeople in general. They're getting higher bases and lower commissions. So we had, no, we had a window to do that and, and it worked out for us.
0: Do you have any openings? Cause you know, I'm winding down here. So, well, we can talk about that offline.
1: Yeah, I, I think you <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Verticals, what, uh, what verticals are you in?
1: I say verticals, uh, I should say more clearly that our verticals are uh, types of industries. So, you know, of course we're heavy white collar really low workers comp stuff so we're we're going to be about an average wage of 80 75 80,000 uh, <clears> we don't have a lot of part time we're doing engineers medical all kinds of you know those those bi- those main white collar services industries um, so those kind of businesses
0: average wages like that, you know, it's music to my ears because those are, that's what the dues are based on. That's a great thing. So.
1: <laughs> ever, is it, is it, you, know, you know, I, I had to talk to the guy that put this new, it was behind this new due structure. Uh, but, but yeah, that was what, something we did. What, back.
0: what, what knucklehead did that, right? Gee, I wonder, right?
1: So. Yeah. You know, that was um, one of my things I did when I was chair of, of an APO. But, I know. <laughs> So I don't, I don't be complain there. about it. You know, I just send in, the, <laughs> I send in the money.
0: What uh, do you still go on sales calls?
1: You know, I don't near as much as uh, as I should. Um, you know, there, especially after COVID, you can really get used to hiding in the office and uh, not getting out. But but I really uh, I really need to get out. Now that you asked me that, you made me feel guilty, and I need to get out and do that. Uh, I try to call all the new clients when they come on and and get a feel for why they bought and, and those kind of things. So I think if, if the salespeople don't like me to go with them, because if they end up selling the deal, I'm going to take credit for it, you know, but I don't really.
0: <laughs> what, uh, what, what's next steps better mousetrap. So when you're out there selling, what's your, what's, your, what do you guys sell?
1: Yeah, I think for us, you know, we kind of try to position ourselves as the best of both worlds. So we're large enough to give you the full service PEO that you're looking for. We have the accreditations and and those things to say, hey, we've got the financial stability we think you should be looking for. And yet we're still of a size where we're nimble enough to give you the kind of attention and service that you'd like to see out of the PEO model. And so when we're out there selling, we're, we're selling those two things as well as our culture. And we talk a lot about our culture and who we are, which we try to do that versus saying, hey, we give great customer service because of course we all get great customer service. And when you're talking in a sales process, but we talk a lot about our culture why we do what we do, our philanthropy efforts and Next Step Foundation and things like that, and um, it's been working
0: for us. But, uh, how how would you describe the culture? I mean, I've been there; you feel it. But how would you describe? It? You
1: know, we're very we're very much employee focused and and um, and I think centric to them and their families and and their their needs so you know number one we have a lot of you know we're probably 85 percent female 80 percent female somewhere around there so we put a lot of emphasis on you know work hard when you're here but we know you got to get home and and you got obligations you know it there's still a uh, something in the DNA when, when a husband and a wife works the the wife tends to go home and, and still have a lot of childcare duties and, and feeding duties and I don't, uh, feeding the kids and I don't want to age myself, but it, it seems like I hear my people talking about that and their responsibilities away from the office. And then the responsibilities to be with with your kids drop them off at school, go to their events. So so we're like, hey, you know, here's our PTO policy. But if you've got things to do that are important to your kids or to your family, you got to let us know and we can flex around that. And because we believe if if you're happy and you're excited about you, the place that you're working, and you feel like the place that you work cares about you and your family then that's gonna show through in the customer service that, that you give to the client. So, you know, there's tangible ways that we try to do that, but I think it's it's just true of our leadership and, and it's kind of been ingrained over the years that, that that's what we believe. And sometimes sometimes it pulls at you because you you feel like someone may have been gone too long during the day or something like that, or came in a little later in the morning uh than you thought they should have, but you just try to go with with uh, the balance that you're building in there. And it, it's worked for us.
0: Well clearly, I mean you got your 20,000, no work site employees, something's worked. Um let me uh change gears and go <laughs> <laughs> had a very dark rabbit hole. Uh Napio, your Napio experience you were I do we may have overlapped briefly. I, I think you were you were I uh, think immediate past chairman when I came in, so you weren't chair yet. I December of 11th. So your Napio experience was anything but smooth. Uh, you had a lot of stuff to deal with there, transition, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, talk to me about, about, you'd come on the board, I guess, and had gone through the, you'd moved your way up to where you were chair. So yeah, talk to me about your Napio experience.
1: You know, it was, it was a great a great time, you know, for the industry, and there was a lot going on, and we were trying to do a lot of things. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. Um, it did get a little heavy there in the one in the year that I was a chairman, but um, you know, it was really a time where you had Insperity, who had been a longtime leader in the industry, but at the same time. ADP had begun to have success and begun to focus on being involved in the industry. And so did Trinet. So you started to have multiple big publicly traded companies all start to wanna be more involved in the association. And before that, not as much. You know, they they, they began to, and it kind of was coming to a head And so there was, there was a lot, and then there was a lot of controversy and a lot of uh, discussion about the federal bill and, you know, and and what was the importance of that? And was it for one PEO or was it for the industry? Um, And then we had a problem with dues and, and dues were just really low and it was hard to, because there was a cap on dues, right? I mean, if you didn't pay if you got to a certain size, you'll and and so it was like, well, I wish they'd do that with income taxes, but they don't. And, and we stopped doing that with uh, with dues. And the focus became on governance and, and and what can we do with governance to make sure that everyone gets involved because At that time, that that increasing level of involvement was what made Napio stronger. And today, that's what really makes us as strong as we've gotten today, is that we've got so many new people with new ideas. You know, those of us that have had a little success with old ideas, we don't like new ideas so much. But and back then, you know, also Napio liked to position itself in a way I felt that they gave people a lot of advice on how they should run their business and let them know if they were running their business in some way that didn't fit up to some kind of standard that napio had or didn't napio didn't have the standard they did they had some so anyway it was like hey you know you're not going to get a long way you're not going to go real far telling a bunch of entrepreneurs how to run their business you know, and, and kind of policing them. And and I understand why that was happening back in those days, but it was a great time. We've made a lot of changes and a new governance structure and a new due structure. We happened to make an opportunity for NAPIO to bring in, which I think has been the most dynamic leader and the best leader that the industry's had. And, and your success it's just been great. And it's, and it's come at a time of a lot of growth and a lot of new things going on in the industry. And, and uh, it's just totally different today than it was in, in 2011, as far as I can tell. I don't, I've retired from getting involved in the social politics in APA when I'm there, but uh, um, it, it I, I just couldn't be more proud and, and and uh, more happy for where we're at and the success we've had.
0: Well, thanks, Pal. And I, you know, I say all the time, I mean, I stand on your shoulders, right? I mean, I inherited a uh, organization where you guys had kind of built the infrastructure and you you know you kind of, you know, uh, uh, leveled out the uh, you know, the, cleared out the trees and built the highway I was able to get on, right? It was a thing you fought the early battles. And so it made it a whole lot easier for me for like the next 10, 12 years. And as you know, uh you know like like with you a fabulous team right and and they've just been great throughout so that that's made it a whole lot easier for me obviously um yeah and you know uh so and also i know on the personal front you know sort of while you were chair you know uh, dealing with a lot of stuff but i don't want to mention that that we'll just gloss right over that and go over to other stuff
1: oh yeah you know well everybody's always dealing with some personal stuff and uh and I'm no exception, but, but yeah, that was a, definitely a time, you know, in my life where, um, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not a big believer in, in the, uh, too much public discourse about, uh, sobriety and whether or not, um, someone has had success in sobriety. Um, because I always worry about what happens when a single individual that has had some success maybe stops having success and, and and falls back into addiction. So I think anytime, you know, if I were to come out and say, hey, you know, I've had these issues and I've been in sobriety for a long time, the minute I stumble, you know, somebody uses that for an excuse to say, you know, sobriety doesn't work. But I'll tell you that during that time, you know, there there was a, uh, in my case, a misstep or a, a a slide back into an old way of of uh, of doing things that wasn't healthy for me. And um, you know, by the grace of God and and all of those things, you know. It hadn't been that way since and you know my life's been uh, tremendously better my company's had much more success and um and i'm sure some of the members of napio might even enjoy that too but uh <laughs> yeah no, you, I know, just, I've I, done,
0: you know you know i've always i've, always, I've just always admired how uh, upfront you were with me uh, about that, and how you just owned it, and and I just yeah, uh, yeah again, uh, I want to own off, it. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I've just always been really impressed with how you uh, how you dealt with it. uh, You know, in board meetings and otherwise, uh, it's it was great and uh, an inspiration to me and others. And uh, as everybody knows, man, it's a day at a time. Well, you know, I'll,
1: I'll say this. You know, I, I I do love to own it because. Uh, I've lived long enough now to see that uh, just so many things that we all struggle with, right? And, you know, addiction is one, you know, my father-in-law, you you know, he didn't disown me. And he said, you know, Brian, everybody's got something. And so I've no other members that, that have family members that struggle. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible disease that destroys families and relationships and uh, time with kids. And so, you know, if, if anybody out there is uh, in that situation or has a family member that's in that situation and then they, uh, they ever want a little bit of insight into how that world works, because there's a whole There's the the side of the world that is not as much knowledge about recovery and mental health issues. And then there's the other side once you step into that and the whole world that opens up and, and how people handle those things. And I really think of addiction as, you know, there's a mental health issue, there's a trauma issue, you know, somewhere in the person's life. And then and there's that addiction that's classic in in what people are struggling with. So it's it's multifaceted and it's a multifaceted approach. And if anybody ever needs any insight or would lo- love to would like to to have some insight if they have a loved one that's struggling, I'm always available to uh, to kind of share my experience.
0: Well I will tell you, pal, again as I said it's been an inspiration to me and being around you from jump at first, I was like, I don't know what to make of this big Oklahoma. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I know what to make. And uh, we've got to be friends since. And uh, again, I just, every, it just seems like every time uh, you know we've been together or we visit, uh, that's out there. It's uh, out in front and you own it. And just been a real, for me, an inspiration, you know, uh, and for anybody, you know, to, to, about, uh, well, their lives.
1: well, thank you. And and, uh, and again, I'll say, you know, don't judge what not being an addiction can look like by what you might think of what somebody's actions are today. You see people posting on social media and you see all kinds of things. And, and I'm fine with that. But, you know, when there's when there's a lot of publicity around that, I think sometimes it can Give people an excuse not to choose sobriety if they see someone publicly have a misstep or fall off, and then they kind of go, Hey, you know, this guy was full of crap, you know, and uh, so there's always that danger. And you know, if I were to act like a jerk in a public setting, you know, people say, You know, look how. Look how serenity, look how much serenity or how peaceful that guy is, you know. And uh, of course, I'm still human and sometimes I act like a jerk, but I work really hard not to.
0: (laughs) Okay, so you've almost beaten Alex Campos, but I realized he's Cuban. He talks really fast. You're from Oklahoma. You talk really slow. So I think he might have gotten more content in. So, you know, if you listen to the last two, here's the last question. What is something about the
1: great Brian Fay Act that people don't know? Well, I think one, they just heard about, a lot about, and, uh, or probably knew and and now they know officially. Uh, so that's one thing that uh, that I think people know. I think some things I'm glad they don't know, uh, and we'll keep those on the down low because you never know what might be out there. Um, but you know, I think, uh, I don't know if this is something that's interesting or not interesting, but you know, I, these days I, I, I think of life in uh, in a very simple way. Right. I mean, I just come to work, I watch Netflix, you know, I, I don't have a lot of, you know, I don't want to another vacation. I don't want a vacation home and I don't want to do all of these extravagant things. And I don't want to go to social events and I don't want to, you know, be involved. I just want to live a simple life, you know, take care of the people that work for me here at Next Step take care of the people in my life as best as I can and, um, you know, do the next right thing. And that sound, that, that years ago, that would have sounded like a pretty boring life to me. And one that, that I, wasn't filled with, what was it, Robin Leach, champagne wishes and caviar dreams, you know, and all of these kind of things. And today, it's a life that I love, and I'm thankful that I have it, and and it's just wonderful.
0: Thank you. A great buddy of mine has a sign in his house, the most important things in life are not things. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, there's that's there's a lot of truth to that.
0: Well, pal, thank you so much. I think you and Alex are probably nip and tuck, but you do have to factor in the number of words. I mean, he got more in, but that was it. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today, pal. It's great. I'll see you uh, June, I think. next uh, Not next month, but in, in June, pretty soon. Uh, i going to come down and see you guys, and it'll be good to see you again and see the, see the gang. Uh, but I really do appreciate the time today, everybody. Uh, Brian Fayak of Next Step. Uh, the the king of Oklahoma well I guess Dale would give give you a run for the money for that I'm talking to Dale yeah, Dale's
1: um, pretty tied in here
0: yeah, yeah 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 but uh it's great and Brian thanks so much appreciate it
1: hey thank you Pat and I appreciate being on the podcast